This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends, and welcome back. Today we'll continue on with a discussion about a biblical perspective on money. I started this series a couple of episodes ago, and if you haven't heard them, I encourage you to go back and listen. The first one was an introduction to a biblical perspective on money, and it ended with the big lie. And what is that big lie? That the secret of happiness is money, that money will provide what we really want, freedom, security, power, respect. Before I go any further, I'd like to once again give credit to David Pawson. He did a really great teaching on this topic. I took extensive notes, and uh, in some ways I am an impossinator right now. That was his term for people who would take his teachings and basically reteach them. And in large part, I'm doing that now, though I add in my own thoughts and perspectives about different things, come at it perhaps a little bit differently than him, but yeah, really want to give credit to him. I began this series with two stories. One was something that an American pastor said to a small Russian congregation when he came over to correct what he thought were wrong decisions that had been made by the local leadership. He asked the leaders, do you know what the golden rule is? And the leadership was a little bit confused about that, but said, yes, we know the golden rule. And the American pastor said, he who has the gold rules. That's one perspective on money. I don't know that it's much of a biblical perspective or a godly perspective on money. It is definitely a worldly perspective on money. He who has the gold rules. And today we're going to be talking about having money. The first episode was an introduction to the topic. Last time I talked about getting money, a biblical perspective on getting money. And today I'm going to talk about having money or keeping money, uh, what it is to be wealthy, be rich. The other story that I told uh, is something that Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. He was a German pastor under the Nazis, and he ran an illegal seminary. And one time he took several of the seminary students into the city to go to a concert and have some dinner. And they took the train in and out of the city. And as they were going home, one of the students said to Bonhoeffer that it must have cost quite a bit of money to pay for that evening, a meal and travel and the concert for all these young men. And Bonhoeffer turned to him and he said, money is dirt. Well, there are two perspectives there. Is it he who has the gold rules, or is it money is dirt, or is it something else? The whole purpose of these talks, the focus, from my perspective, is discipleship, so that we will turn our hearts and our minds, ourselves, to the Lord, and that we'll be better disciples of Jesus as we listen to his teachings and get his perspective Now, the second in these series of talks was on the topic of getting money. And I quoted John Wesley, who said, 
Get all you can. Save all you can. Give all you can. Last time we talked about getting money. Now we're going to talk about having money. Later, in another episode, we'll talk about giving. And I went through eight common ways that people can get money. Most of them are in the Bible. And the the first one on the list was stealing. (laughs) That is a biblical way of getting money. A lot of people in the Bible stole money. But God says, don't ever do it. Never, ever do it. That's in the Old Testament. That's in the New Testament. Don't ever steal. I also spoke about exploiting people, gambling, borrowing money, investing money, inheriting wealth, receiving charity from others, and finally, working for money, which is the basic principle of the Christian life. Now, today we're going to talk about having money. And there's a lot more in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, about the dangers of being rich than most people are comfortable hearing about. And we have to understand that God warns people about having too much money, that there is a great danger in having money. First, I want to address what is known as the health and wealth gospel. This is a pretty common teaching in the West today. Of course, I'm familiar with American culture, but I've also seen American churches go overseas to do mission work, and they plant this teaching and this idea in other cultures where it really is a foreign idea, and it's like a cancer. It grows. It'll feed on people's desires, and it'll grow, and it'll choke out the real thing. So what is the health and wealth gospel? Well, basically, It's a teaching that it is God's will for every believer to always be healthy and wealthy, that God promises this. And if we don't have health and wealth, then there's some problem with our faith or our relationship with God is not healthy. That's the health and wealth gospel that God wants and expects every follower of Jesus to be healthy and to be wealthy. And this is not the true gospel. It's another gospel. And it's based on uh, really insecure foundations in Scripture. There are just a few isolated Bible verses that might be used to support this idea, but I can't see any reason to base this gospel in Scripture. It's another gospel. And we should not only ignore it, we should teach against it. It is not the will of God that on this earth, every believer would always be healthy and wealthy as defined by the world's standards, meaning you have a lot of money and your body is in excellent condition. That is not God's will. One thing to notice is that this offer of wealth and health is exactly what the world wants. It's what the world offers. You see this in advertising. These two things go together. (laughs) When they advertise things in print or on the internet or on television, they don't have poor, ugly, unhealthy people selling things. It's always beautiful, wealthy, well-to-do people who are representing this product, whatever product it is. We're encouraged to get health and wealth in a consumer society. So, if this is something that the world offers, then we should be very, very careful 
when that comes into the church, we should shun it. We should run away from it, despise it. There's no evidence of this teaching anywhere in the life of Jesus or in the life of the early church. You remember Jesus was homeless. He was poor. If the health and wealth gospel were true, Jesus himself would have been the most wealthy person on the face of the earth. Now, I assume he was very healthy, but he was poor. He was despised by people. He was looked down on by people. Jesus was very poor. He said so himself. He said, I don't have a place to lay my head. The apostles, those who walked with Jesus and learned directly from him, they all lived in poverty. Many, most of the early apostles were killed for their faith. They were poor. And this brings me to the story about Thomas Aquinas when he met the Pope. Thomas was visiting Rome and went into the Vatican. This is the way the story goes. I've read several different versions of this story. Thomas is visiting Rome, and he goes with the Pope, and he sees all the wealth of the church. All of the wealth, all of these donations from around Christendom had come into Rome. And the Pope says, Ah, look, Thomas, the church can no longer say, Silver and gold have I none. And Aquinas said, That is true, your holiness. But then neither can it now say, Arise and walk. Well, let's look at where that quote comes from. This is from Acts chapter 3. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Now a crippled man from birth was being carried to the temple gate, called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. And when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. And Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And then Peter said, Look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. Amen. What a beautiful story. Silver or gold have I none, but what I do have I give you. Rise and walk. That's what Thomas was touching on. Often the presence of wealth leads to a loss of spiritual power and authority. Somebody has a lot of money, they can begin to think, well, I'll use this money to solve this problem. Instead of praying and asking for supernatural intervention, Say, well, I've got money. I can do this. I think this is right. Let's use wealth to address this issue. Well, that's the problem with the health and wealth gospel. People get a lot of money, and then they don't really depend so much on the flow of God's Spirit in their lives. They can find their security in the money. Now, it's very important that we recognize that there is a difference on this topic of money and rewards in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, Israel did not have a real clear understanding of what happens after death. The belief in the Old Testament times was that after you died, you went to this place called Sheol. In Greek, it's Hades, the place of the dead. But it was shadowy, and you weren't quite sure what happened there. 
They didn't have a concept of the afterlife, though it is touched on occasionally in the Old Testament writings. And so they learned, and God was actually teaching, that in this life we have rewards and punishments, blessings and curses. God cursed them physically, and he blessed them physically on this earth. Abraham was a rich man. Job was a rich man. The kings of Israel were rich people, many others. Even so, many rich men in the Old Testament faced many temptations. Think of Solomon. Now, in the New Testament, in contrast, life and immortality come to light. Jesus spent much of his time teaching in order to prepare people for eternal life. Life after death is central to the understanding of the New Testament teachings. That life after death is where we get rewards. Rewards are in the life to come. And that life to come is much more real than our life here on this earth. Because this earth and everything on it is going to pass away. But in the world to come, that is the eternal. What is unseen is more real than what is seen. That's a central teaching. And this is one of the problems with the health and wealth gospel. I do believe that God wants his people to be eternally healthy and wealthy, to be fully healthy and to have all of their needs met in abundance. But that is not the promise for this life. That is not at all God's promise for this life. So in one sense, I would agree, yes, God wants his people to be healthy and wealthy, but it's not here. It's in the life to come. Here, we are prepared for that life to come, and this is where God builds our character, and he starts to lay up in us these eternal treasures, and we can bear eternal fruit here and now. Well, let's move on then to talk about, I guess the question would be, is it wrong to keep money? Is it wrong? Is it morally bad to have money? Well, the answer is, scripturally, there are very many dangers in having a lot of money. Jesus said it is very hard for a rich man to enter in the kingdom. And I'll say it's hard to be rich after you've entered the kingdom. There are many dangers and temptations. As I said, Jesus himself was poor. People gave money to him. You know, Judas kept that money. He was the treasurer. And Judas was tempted to sell Jesus for money. And what a terrible thing for a disciple to want money more than the Lord. The temptations of wealth are great. As a matter of fact, I know personally Some people who have been involved in missions, who started well, but ended very badly. We, of course, can read in the news about Christian ministers who get corrupted by wealth. Uh, But I know people who have started really well. Uh, One man I know, he's a great pastor, really good guy. But then the money started flowing, and uh, it corrupted him, I think. I don't know where he is now, and I pray and trust that He's repented of all that, but his ministry couldn't survive because the money had such an effect on his decision-making 
and it became so dominant. He actually broke some laws and was embezzling money that had been given to help the poor. So it is really hard for a rich person to remain in the kingdom. Many New Testament references actually express God's favor for the poor. In Luke 6, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor, and he says, Woe to the rich. A woe is a curse. God shows his favor for the poor. Blessed are the poor, but woe to you rich. Jesus talks about the danger of riches and the blessing of poverty. It's all through the New Testament. It is very rare for a rich person to enter into the kingdom. That's in Matthew 19, Mark 10, Luke 18. It's very rare. We need to keep that in mind. I know people who have uh, strategies of preaching the gospel, and they want to evangelize the richest people because they think the rich people are the ones who will have the most influence. Well, we should go where the Lord leads us, and he certainly does love people with wealth. But it is really rare for a wealthy person to truly enter into the kingdom. It's not impossible. Our God is the God of the impossible, so it does happen. But once a rich person is in the kingdom, then they have their own peculiar temptations. Uh, We'll talk about them here in a little bit, but these temptations to control others and to control destiny, uh, temptation to have our security in the money, to think that we can have power because we have money, that we don't need to seek God, those are great temptations and great sins that wealthy people in particular will fall into. Let's look very quickly here at Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 11. And this will be familiar to most of you, the story of the seed. And I'll read starting in verse 11, where Jesus gives the meaning of the parable. And here, starting in verse 11, Jesus says, This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. So you remember that the seed fell on the path and on rock and among thorns and then finally on good soil. So I do want to point out, even though this is not really the topic at hand, there are times when we speak to people and evil forces come and they steal faith. Isn't that interesting that there are demons, the devil can steal faith so that people just can't believe and be saved? There's a spiritual battle going on that we really don't see. Continuing in verse 13, those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. I'll say I've seen that happen quite a bit. Verse 14, the seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures and they do not mature. Well, there you go. People can hear the word of God and respond to it well, and then as we go through life, our faith can be choked out. It doesn't grow to maturity. It doesn't bear fruit, and it's choked out by life's worries, riches, and pleasures. Jesus says, don't worry, and don't pursue riches, and don't try to gratify yourself. Amen. 
So I will say it's easy for a rich man to enter a church, but it's very hard for him to enter the kingdom. And I imagine that there are rich people in church buildings on Sunday mornings who are not in the kingdom. And this is primarily because of the the danger of riches, the big lie that they can depend upon their own riches instead of being humble and submitting to the Lord. I'll go into a section here that I really like. Uh, Pawson was a master of alliteration. He would often start different sections of his teachings with the same letter just to help memory. And he talks about how wealth can destroy a person. And he starts with ambition that turns into addiction, which becomes adoration. Ambition, addiction, adoration. That's this pathway that money can lead us on. And this ambition is the ambition to make money. And it's very, very common. It's a desire, a deep desire to make money. And this ambition is born out of the basic emotional needs and this big lie that money will meet these needs. It's the big lie that money is the secret of happiness, that money will provide what we really need. Freedom, security, power, respect. Now, there are three basic needs of fallen man. Security. And is money the path to security? A lot of people believe so. So let's look at Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. Uh, Jesus tells this story. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them all, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then Jesus told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. And he thought to himself, Well, what will I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, Well, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And this is what Jesus says to his disciples, people following him and listening. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. Well, there's quite a few things that can be said here, of course. This rich man was a fool. God said to him, you're foolish. If anybody wants to quote Jesus, remember he said, eat, drink, and be merry. (laughs) And Jesus was quoting a foolish man when he said it. This rich man was completely insecure. He was finding his own security in his food and his stuff. He was planning as if he's just going to live on and on and on. And we all think we're going to be here forever, that this is our home. And the more secure we are here, the better it is. And this brings to mind something that I read. I mentioned the book a while ago. The book is called From Dawn to Decadence by the French historian Jacques Barzun. 
And he quoted a churchman back in, I believe it was the 1600s, when there was a plague going through Europe. And this man said, Never have I seen so many people so close to death acting as if they will live forever. Amen. Well, that's happening today. All of us are headed towards death. Our spirits leaving our bodies, every single one of us at some point is going to have to let go of everything we've ever known on this earth. And it's foolish to put our hope in bigger barns and storing things up for ourselves. Another part of security, which is interesting, if you find your security in your stuff, the more stuff you have, the more wealth you have, well, the more time and energy it takes to manage it. And the less time and energy there is to go out and be blessing other people. It just takes time to manage wealth. It takes a lot of time and energy. And, and actually, the more that you have, then the more you want. And that is a pretty common problem in wealthy societies. You get some, and then you want more and you find your security in having more and more. This reminds me, a friend of mine back in Atlanta when I lived there many years ago, he joined what was called the Moore Community. I think that was the name of it. And it was a community of people who were dedicated to helping each other get more. So they all said, I'm here to help you get more. So if somebody wanted more money, they got more money. If somebody wanted more food, they got more food. If somebody wanted more sexual activity, they would help them with that. And you can imagine that that community did not last very long because it was full of selfish people. Completely full of selfish people. And they were building their community on selflessness. I will selflessly help you get more as long as you selflessly help me get more. (laughs) Well, the more we have, the more we want. And then the more we have, the more we can be afraid. You know, we fear losing things. Inflation, recession, collapse, loss, theft. If we have a lot of stuff, then there's more fear that goes with it. We begin to feel less secure. And Jesus makes it very clear that we can never ever find security in money. Money is fleeting, and it's a false foundation for hope. Well, that's security. What's another basic need for man? Respect. We want to be esteemed by others. We want to have a good reputation. But really, that shows our inferiority complex, that we're afraid of being less than other people. One way that this is expressed in the culture is somebody may ask, well, what's he worth? How much money does he have? As if the worth of a human being is how much money they've built up. We all have this fault, and we tend to this fault, even in the church, that the richer are worth more than the poor. That's a terrible thing. In the church, we must die to ourselves. We must die to ourselves not try to build ourselves up or find our sense of value in what we have. James in chapter 2 talks about this very thing. He says, if you pay more attention to a rich person, that's wrong in the sight of God. Nowadays, churches see a potential customer in rich people. There's this advertising mentality that gets into the Western church, and you want to attract people that have money, 
And the truth is that we insult the poor if we give more attention to the rich. Rich people can think, well, I must have been more diligent, I must have been smarter than those who have been less successful. That's a great temptation, that pride. I must be a better person because God is blessing me with money. A rich person can think that way, and other people around him can think that way. That's why we have a celebrity society in the West. Somebody who's in a movie makes a lot of money. Everybody thinks, well, they must be better than us. Or if they share their thoughts about religion or politics or finance, we need to listen to them because they obviously are better than us because they have more money. (laughs) But let's remember what Jesus said. Life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. When Jesus walked on this earth, he chose to be with the poor and the beat down. That's his heart. Another basic need or desire of humans is power. Power to control our own lives, power to control other people, to make money, to get power. And then you get power and you can have control over your life, your circumstances, over people around you. I mentioned this false statement of the golden rule, he who has the gold rules. A friend of mine who is involved in business knows Um, I think he said two or three billionaires. He has spent time with people who have over a billion dollars. And I'll quote him. I'm not sure if this is an exact quote because I wrote it down a day or two after we had this conversation. But he said, billionaires talk about what they want to talk about. (laughs) That means that billionaires don't really care what someone else says unless it's in line with their will. I read a story about a billionaire who bought a house by the sea and there were some rocks, um, I don't know, fist-sized rocks that went down between the house and the ocean. And he hired somebody to polish all those rocks between his house and the sea. He had the money. He was going to express his will. He's going to control the people around him. And he's going to get all of those rocks polished so that when he walks from his house to the sea, he'll have rocks under his feet that bring him pleasure. That's the thing about money and having money and having power. It's the power to express a selfish will all the time and to ignore others and the thoughts of others, to rule over them and to arrogantly assume that you know what's best because you have a lot of money. That's a danger. And God is heartbroken at the corruption that comes with having a lot of money. These are the warnings of Jesus, that even a person who has some amount of faith, as they get pulled into these temptations, they're left fruitless, immature, choked out. Well, that's the exact opposite of God's will for human beings. We are to serve. We're to be dependent on God, to be humble, and to set aside ourselves. Well, this ambition can become an addiction, and that is saying, I've got to make more money. I'm addicted to making money. And here it's good to remember that there are two opposites in the Bible. One is covetousness. God is completely against coveting what other people have, coveting things, wanting more and more and more, being greedy. Covetousness is absolutely forbidden by God. Now, the opposite of covetousness is contentment. And Paul says, 
Godliness with contentment is great profit. That's from 1 Timothy. Paul actually uses a financial term here that if we're godly and we're content, then that is like a lot of money. (laughs) As a matter of fact, it's better than a lot of dollars because it goes into eternity. I've heard it said you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. This is how we send it on ahead. We refuse to covet. We refuse to find our meaning in money. And we are content with what God gives us. And contentment comes from gratitude, that we can be thankful, grateful for what we have and not ask for anything other than what God gives us. I'm going to quote a scripture here, and I want you to think about the first thing that comes into your mind. And here it is from Philippians chapter 4. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. How do you apply that scripture? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've heard a lot of teaching about that. I've spoken about that scripture. But do you know the context? It's about money. That text is all about money, about living on what you have and learning to live and be content with whatever comes in. Now, we can think of things that we can do through Christ that you can't do on your own, but how many of us would apply that to money? Go ahead and read Philippians chapter 4 and see what Paul is talking about. It's about being content, having a lot or having a little, being well-fed or hungry. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, we also now come to this verse that is so often misquoted. It's found in 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'll misquote it now. Money is the root of all evil. Okay, that's the misquote. Let's read all of this verse here. Paul says, The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and some people, eager for money, have wandered from the truth and pierced themselves with many griefs. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Amen. That love of money, that addiction to money. And Paul says, man, I've seen it so often. People who are addicted to money, eager to get money, they wander from the faith and they pierce themselves with many griefs. Can't say the devil did it. Can't say God is punishing me. People pierce themselves because they are chasing after money, chasing after wealth. And it is through this craving and addiction for money that many have wandered away from the faith. And they've hurt themselves and they hurt the people around them too. Well, we've talked about ambition for money. We've talked about addiction to money. And now we come to adoration. And this is where, in a person's life, money becomes God. Another word for it is mammon. And Jesus said very clearly, he said, you cannot serve both money and God. Money's become a God, but you can't serve both. So I had this question, how can mammon, wealth, worldly wealth, become a God. And one way that helps me to think about it is to ask a question. Will I use money to get more of God or use God to get more money? We know people, I know people, who use God 
God language to get more money. And I've been tempted. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but when I first came overseas, I realized I was in a place where I needed to write or was expected to write support letters or newsletters to people in the United States who were sending financial support. And I realized that I could put a picture up of a sad Russian orphan and I could make an emotional appeal to people so that they would give me more money. And God told me, don't ever do it. Don't think of donors as a source of money for you. That's what God was saying to me. Let the blessings flow away from you. Encourage people to walk with God and be good disciples. And that's the way I view it. If Jesus speaks to somebody and tells them to send us some financial support, amen, that's good. I want it done out of obedience to Jesus. I do not want a response to my manipulative communication. Amen. Am I going to use God language to get more money? Shame on me if I ever do that. But will I use money to get more of God? Yeah, amen. That's what I want to do, to use my worldly wealth here to store up treasure in heaven. And we'll talk about that in the future, exactly how Jesus discusses that very issue. So there's that question, where is happiness? Is happiness in wealth, money, or is happiness in God himself? A related question is what provides for your needs? What is the source of life? And several years ago, I had a big breakthrough in understanding this. One of my early trips into eastern Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo, I met some pygmies. And the churches there have done a lot of evangelism, have planted churches in pygmy villages. And pygmies, before the gospel comes to them, they're animists, and they worship the spirits that are in the trees, in the forest, in the jungle. As a matter of fact, one of the pastors that I met before his conversion, he was a priest of a cult that worshipped the spirit of an ant hill. And some of you may have seen pictures of ant hills in the forests in Africa, in this part of Congo. They can be very tall, maybe three or four feet tall. And this particular ant hill had a particular shape that was unlike other ant hills in the area. And so the pygmies thought, well, there must be a spirit there. There must be some spirit that's causing that ant hill to have that shape. So let's worship that spirit. Let's give offerings to that spirit. That's a powerful spirit, and we want to make sure that spirit is happy with us. See, this is the danger of animism, of worshiping false gods. The pygmies are not sure if that's a good god or a bad god, if that god is going to be mean to them. They're not quite sure what offerings are acceptable. Oh, it's, a, it's a prison. It's a spiritual prison. And these pygmies in Congo, they worship the jungle because the jungle provides what they need. Their food and their housing, all their activities are in the jungle, and they look to the forest and the spirits of the forest as the source of what they need for life. That's how money can become a god. If we look to money as the source of all that we need. Do we think that money provides all that we need? That's worship. We turn our hearts towards the thing that we perceive as providing our needs. And that's the big lie. 
That is the big lie. The secret of happiness is money. No, God owns all of the money in the world. God is the source of life. And amen, he's a good God. We don't have to be in doubt about his love for his people. He's a good God. But we can't worship money and God at the same time. We can't do it. It's impossible. And God will not allow any anyone else or any other force on this earth to be equal with him. He alone sits enthroned above the heavens. Well, moving on. Exodus 16, verse 18, has a really good insight into how we should be thinking about money and our place in the world and what God gives us. You remember when the Israelites were out in the desert, God sent manna from heaven. It was this bread-like food that fell and they would gather it up. And Exodus 16, verse 18 says, He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. And I think in this one verse is God's ideal for our societies, for our life together. Those who gathered much didn't have too much, and those who gathered little did not have too little. You know, some people need more than other people. If you've got a family of seven children, you need more than somebody who's got a family of two children. Both kinds of people in this verse, those who gather much and those who gather little, are content, and both had exactly what was needed. They had enough. Well, let's not compare ourselves with others, hmm? Let's live on what God gives us. On Fridays, the nation of Israel had to gather twice as much manna, remember? Because they were not to gather on the Sabbath. And God provided what was needed. In the sixth year, God provided a bumper crop so that the land could lay fallow for the seventh year. So that means in the sixth year, he gave twice as much as he did in other years. God knows what we need. And very often I've found that if we have a lot of money coming in, I've learned that Well, maybe God's got something big coming right now. If he's sending all of this wealth, all this money, all these resources, then I think he's preparing us for something. Let's watch out. Instead of putting it all in barns and storing it away, let's keep it flowing. I got a big shout of hooray when I was speaking about this in Congo. I said, God has many bank accounts. And I was thinking about the way to apply it locally. They use, they call it M-Peso, I think, M-Pesa, mobile money. And most people in Congo have a, it's not really a bank account, but it's a financial account linked to your cell phone number. So that's the way they transfer money around is you'll just get on your cell phone, type in some text, and you'll transfer money electronically from account to account. And I said, God owns every M-Pesa account in Congo. And I got a big cheer A big hurrah. (laughs) God has many bank accounts. My bank account is one. And when I give as he commands, then I'm just moving money from one of his accounts into another account. And we'll talk about tithing a little bit later. I think it's important for us to realize not only does 10% of my money belong to God, 100% of my money belongs to God. He will move money into my account when I need it. And he'll move in my heart to send that money somewhere else. Somebody else needs it. When I first moved over to Russia, a friend of mine, he's a CPA who's 
always involved in buying and selling property and finances and tax returns and things like that. But he said, the kingdom of God is not about buying and selling. It's about giving and receiving. I come back to that statement so often. The kingdom of God isn't about buying and selling, trying to sell something at a profit and make money. And It's about giving and receiving, that we are freely to give as we freely receive. We let the Lord control our bank accounts. Let him control our will about where our money goes. We hold that money very, very loosely. And sometimes he gives a lot, but it's not too much. Sometimes he gives a little, but it's not too little. It's up to him. Well, I'll close this section with a few scriptures that apply. Proverbs 28, verse 22. A stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or proud, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides with everything to enjoy. Amen. Okay, some people listening to me right now have a lot of money. As a matter of fact, most people listening to me right now are probably in the richest 1% of human beings when you consider all of creation over all of time. And God is charging us. He's telling us, don't be proud and don't put our hope in the uncertainty of riches, but we put our hope on God, who is certain. And actually, it is he who provides everything for us to enjoy. James chapter 1, verse 9 and following. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom fails and its beauty is destroyed. And in the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Here is an excellent, excellent example of how the kingdom of God is completely different from the kingdom of this world. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But someone who is rich should take pride in his low position. Wow. Amen. Luke chapter 9, verse 25 Jesus says, What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? Luke 12, verses 33 and 34. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God is faithful. He has promised to provide. And let us all learn contentment. Well, until next time, friends, I pray that these truths of God will settle deep into our hearts that our hearts will be good soil so that when the word falls on our hearts, it'll bear fruit, good fruit, fruit that is eternal and abundant. And I pray 
that we all will continue to walk in these things, not just believe them to be true, but actually live them out. Because the pathways of God are always, always good, and they always lead to peace for the soul. Amen. Jesus said to his disciples, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you for listening, and God bless you all. Thank you.